Hi, everybody. My name is Ken, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to, I need to adjust this. Is it adjustable? There. I hope, I'm glad I can see over the podium. I was worried about that. Um, I, um, I want to thank Lisa and wish her a happy birthday. It was great to see you here and to see you up here. I want to thank Stephen Guy and Annette for having me and making me feel so welcome. Um, this would never be in my budget, and I don't foresee it being in my budget for a long, long time, and so it's really nice to, to have this. Um, like, like Lisa, my gifts um, are, are many in, in sobriety, and he synchronized my watch. And it's just really wonderful to be here and run into people that I know and, and friends of friends, and, and uh, it's just a good deal. And, and I've been hanging out with uh, my friend Leslie and, and Debbie and, and uh, Eileen, and we've just had a great time on the beach. And it's been very, very nice. Um, let's see. I, I have this odd thing where, it, you know, if I have to drive to Pacoima in the rain to talk, and there's six people there, I give a really good talk. But if someone, I, if, I must be my Catholicism, I'm convinced I'm, that I'm going to be punished if I'm here having a good time. And, and uh, I was flown here, and I have a room, and, a, and got a t-shirt and all that. I think, oh no, I, I'm, surely I'm, I'm going to fail. Um, I, um, I wanted to thank Bob also for, for his talk. It was wonderful, and I, especially something that just struck me. I think it struck both Debbie and I. We both just looked at each other when he said that, you know, thinking that, I guess maybe I'm paraphrasing, but that sobriety was, was the absence of problems. And I um, carried that, or recovery and serenity, I carried that idea with me for my entire life and for well, well into my sobriety. I, my sobriety date is September 24, 1985. Um, I... Uh, let me just begin at the beginning before I start jumping all over the place. Um, I was born, let's just start there. Um, I grew up in Northern California um, into an alcoholic home for whatever that's worth. And I'm not necessarily here to demonize my parents from an AA podium, but I, I guess to a certain extent we're products of our environment. And um, it wasn't the worst house, certainly, but it wasn't necessarily the most ideal one either. I mean, I used to think I, when I first got sober, I thought that I had this really tragic childhood on kind of an epic scale. But since hearing a lot of your stories, um, my perceptions of what an unhappy childhood is have altered considerably. And most recently, for being a, being a teacher in uh, inner city Los Angeles, I, uh, my perceptions of unhappy childhoods is I had a good childhood, basically. Um, you know, I grew up in a beautiful place in a house with blue sky over my head. And But, you know, there was that certain element of, of craziness. My father was... Um, this drunken truck driver who was not really a truck driver. He was a novelist gaining experience as a truck driver, but he did retire as a truck driver. And, and my mother was uh, the local librarian in our town who kind of was the one that held it all together. And my favorite story that I love to tell about my mom is uh, when she was the, the old leaky faucet story. There was a leaky faucet at the library and they weren't fixing it and weren't fixing it and one day she snapped and because she would she could go for a long time and then she would just lose it and uh, she snapped and she called down to City Hall and said if you don't get someone here to fix this leaky faucet I'm going to run nude down Woodrow Avenue with a sign around my neck that says I work for the city of Santa Cruz and I've been driven mad by a leaky faucet um, always interesting um, 
lots of broken glass at our house, lots of broken windows. Um, I remember a time the glass man had been there for like the third or fourth time that week, and as he was leaving, he repaired the window, and he, he stuck his head back in the front door, and he looked at my mom and said, Lady, you're the captain of a strange ship. And that was kind of uh, life at our house. My dad would be gone for long stretches of time, and sometimes the police would bring him home, and sometimes he'd come home in these strange vehicles. I remember driving around for a while in this old highway patrol car with the seals primered out and um he it was just uh it, it was just what it was when i was about 12 or so he left and he, he didn't go far though he moved, he just went a few houses down on the same street with a, another woman and her children and uh which i mentioned that it set up a bit of a resentment in me that i carried with me and there were two things that were taken from me when i got to you and and uh actually one the, the first was the obsession to drink it was lifted from me in a, in a hospital room um it was just lifted from me. And, and the other thing was uh, the way that I felt about my father. And I have a really good relationship with him today. And he continues to drink, but he talks about my magic. And, um, you know, he, he knows that it's Alcoholics Anonymous. He knows it's what you have done with me. And, and to the best of his ability and my ability, we have a really wonderful relationship. And I'm so grateful for that because I would have missed that entirely. Um, at any rate, I took my first drink. You know, my story is really simple. I'm one of those Irish Catholic girls that went to seed. I, you know, went bad fast. And... Um, I was 22 when I got sober. Um, it's, that happens to some of us. Um, I took my first drink at about 14, I guess. I, I remember uh, exactly, you know, what it did for me and the way it made me felt and I feel. And, and like like Lisa, I am escapist by nature, and, and, and I am fearful. I'm on a fear foundation, as, as a, another friend of ours, Lisa Johnson, says. Um, it, it just seems like that's kind of the, the hallmark of my existence. And, and to this day, in fact, two of my biggest fears are speaking and flying. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I come from that school of, you know, I'm very grateful. I had Karen Garrison as a sponsor for many years, and she would always tell me, honey, in sobriety we run to our problems and not from them. And, and much of what I have done in Alcoholics Anonymous, in fact, just about everything that I do here is living against my own nature. It is not in my nature to, you know, be honest with you or to be giving or to answer my phone um, or any of those things. But I, you have taught me to, to live against my nature, and as a result, I have a really, really good life. Um, at any rate, uh, so I, I took that first drink. Let me just, I'll just take a quick leap here. I can tell you that uh, I was educated in Catholic schools, and I don't mean to offend anyone here, but I love Catholic school, and I don't think I'm recovering from that experience. Um, I loved everything about it. I, I think I'm, I'm one of those people that works best under structure. The world always has been kind of a frightening and baffling place to me, and um, I knew what to wear there and what to do, and I was very comfortable, and I, I, um, my faith was very important to me, and it uh, remains so today. And, and uh, I, I'm grateful for the education that I got there. Um, when I graduated from that Catholic school from the eighth grade, I had won some different, you know, I'd been very active there in my parish and, and so on. And, and the morning after my eighth grade graduation, I came out and my mom was at the kitchen table and she had my diploma and I'd won some little pins and things. And, and she said to me, Ken, I finally got my scholar. And I can tell you that about a year, a year and a half later, I was standing in front of my mother again, except this time I was behind the counter at the local Drawiner Schnitzel. Um, I was, had started to drink and was a daily drinker by that time. And uh, she was there. I had dropped out of high school with a 0.8 GPA and um, was working at the Darwin Schnitzel full-time. And she was there because I hadn't been home in two or three days. And she would go to where I drank or where I worked or try to find me to see if I was okay. And she was standing there trying not to cry and saying to me, you know, I don't understand what's happened to you. You used to be so active. 
And I didn't understand it either, and I wanted to say that, but I couldn't because I wasn't done drinking. And that alcoholic arrogance came up in me, and I just, you know, said to her, the things that we say, I mean, you know, get out of here, leave me alone, you don't understand, you don't care, you don't love me, whatever it was on the list. And the several months before that, I had taken my first geographic. It seemed like my friends could just party on the weekends and end up back at school, and I was having trouble doing that, and I thought it must be this town. And I had an older sister. She wasn't much older. She was 19 and living in Honolulu at the time and, and uh, practicing our disease, and she had a, an infant and um, was on welfare, and um, that sounded good to me. And I bought a one-way ticket. I, I don't know where I got the money, but I got the money together. And I went over there, and I enrolled in a high school, and I went a time or two, and, you know, just long enough to meet other people like me, dropouts who had, were there to sell drugs, I guess. And, um, and you know, because you know, wherever you go, there you are. And it wasn't any better there. In fact, it was worse. And in, in short order, I got drunk, and I got pregnant, and I terminated that pregnancy, and I'm not here to moralize about that. Um, for, but for me, it was a really big deal. The year before that, I'd been confirmed in the Catholic Church, and that faith that meant a lot to me. And uh, that was just a line I wasn't going to cross. And there's uh, a speaker who talks about whatever principle you're not going to break, whatever line you're not going to cross, alcoholism will see that you cross that line and break that principle. And, and at, you know, 15 and a half, 16, I was already drinking to, to cover up the things that I had done while I was drunk. And I was, you know, trying to experience that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I, I didn't, you gave me the, the words to name it, but uh, I was very familiar with the feeling when I got to you. I decided Hawaii was the problem, it had to be, and I bought a ticket and went back to California, and I, I thought, I'll just wipe Hawaii off the map, I'll forget it ever existed, and, and I'll be all right. And, and uh, that's when I started to work at, at the Derwiner Schnitzel, I, my restaurant career began, and, um, and you know, I not, didn't know that I was to work in restaurants for the next 17 years and the first 11 years of my sobriety. There's not a lot you can do with an eighth grade education, and... Uh, you know, I was, like I said, long into sobriety. I was waiting for my real life to start. Um, at any rate, I'm working at the DeWinner Schinsel, and around this time I met him, and we all know who he is, Mr. Wright. He's uh, currently Mr. D85602 to the warden at Soledad, but at the time he uh, seemed really charming. Um, he just barely, he's doing another nine years. He's, kind of, he's, you know, been institutionalized for all of my sobriety. He'll have maybe in the 14 years I've been sober, he might have been out, you know, a year if you put all the little times together. And it's just so ironic because I've tried to be an example to him. And his big fear is that A is going to take his freedom away. And I understand that type of thinking. You know, I really, I really, really understand that type of thinking. Um, I think we all do. At any rate, this guy, you know, my dates, if you could call them that, by this time we're starting to say things like, you know, my mom says you can't come over anymore, and what are those slash marks on your wrist, and you smell like a brewery, and, and he didn't say any of that stuff, and it was on. Um, he woke up with the shakes like I did, and, you know, before I knew it, I'm stealing money from that throwing a schnitzel and giving it to him, and he's buying drugs and alcohol for us, and um, I ended up, I don't know if I... Lost, if I got fired from that job, or I think I quit just before I was fired. I, I was drunk. I'd been drinking on the beach all day. I showed up. I got in a fight with another employee, a shoving match in the parking lot, and ran behind the counter and, you know, made a scene. It was just, I mean, it was bad enough that I worked at Dewiner Schnitzel, but then to make a drunken scene at Dewiner Schnitzel was just so tawdry, isn't it? Um, and, and I... But then, to me, what to me was a step up. I went to work across town at the Great American Wiener Works, and um, they... Uh, and I want you to know that it was a step up because they served beer. And it wasn't long before I'm loading those cases out the back door and um, 
I, people have a tendency to think I'm a nice girl, and so they'd leave me alone in there. Um, at any rate, it's, you know, it just, it was all catching up with me, and I just, uh, let me speed this up, but, uh, well, let's just put it this way. I had a bad week. Um, I had this. I bought this car. I had purchased it before I knew how to drive. Uh, I didn't, of course, had no driver's license or registration or insurance. I, I think I was about a year and a half sober before I got a driver's license. Um, that stuff just seemed so difficult to me. And, you know, I, I, I would try. I really would. I just, you know, those kind of things, those things that I've gotten in sobriety, like having a driver's license and insurance, and I filled out my absentee ballot before I left, and and I pay my taxes. I, you know, it seems so silly, but those things have given me so much freedom because I, you know, facing those things, I cannot bear any kind of responsibility. I am always running from it. But of course, the more you run from it, the more it just piles up, and it, it, it would always be in what I used to call my anxiety closet. Um, but at any rate, I had no insurance and I had no driver's license. And I can remember, you know, trying to, to do those things. I just couldn't get it together. I can remember trying to go and get birth control, and always they would ask that question, you know, what was the first day of your last period? And I would think, who would know that? You cannot expect me. I just, it was hard. It was really hard. It was. Um, at any rate, I, I, I totaled this car in a blackout. And within that same period, week or whatever it was, I was beaten really badly by this young man. And it, that wasn't anything new, but it was starting to get ugly. And I didn't know how to get away from him. And I found myself looking through the newspaper the next day to see if I'd hit anyone or killed anyone because I didn't know what I had done with this car. I had just woken up with that weight on my chest that something had gone wrong the night before. And I thought maybe it had something to do with my car. And, and um, I, um, you know, I, I do what we do. I bought a one-way ticket back to the place I said I'd never go. I went back to Honolulu. I, got a, I was 18 by this time. And um, I was with that guy for a few years, and drinking age was 18 at that time in Hawaii, and I, I got a job in a bar. I was a cocktail waitress. Um, we had $1.50 drinks and four bands a day and two Elvis impersonators, and, and I thought I was home. I did not feel like I was home when I got to AA, but I felt like I was home when I, when I went to work in that bar. And, and um, but you know, I'm just crossing those lines, and things are catching up with me. And by the time I'm 19, I'm on my fourth abortion. And how has that happened? You know, and I, I swear I never planned on living that way. And I'm now so far removed from that faith that meant a great deal to me and so far removed from um, any kind of spiritual comfort or, or grace. And, of course, when you're severed from a spiritual connection, you're severed from a human connection. And, and we all know that kind of intense, intense loneliness. Um, I uh, got involved with a married man, and he was one of the Elvis's bass players, and that was, we weren't supposed to, the waitresses weren't supposed to mix with the band members, and that was a big problem, and and uh, he wasn't leaving his wife the way I thought he should, and I decided to punish him, and and I went to China. Um, it made a lot more sense at the time, I want you, I want you to know. Um, but I I had always, I'd always been a reader in spite of my lack of formal education, my, my mother being a librarian and a single mom, I spent a lot of time in, in libraries and had a lot of time to fantasize. And I'd always, you know, wanted to be one of these kind of well-traveled, anti-name kind of characters with this exotic coterie of friends. I never wanted to be married. I wanted to have a series of affairs. I wanted to, you know, go to these exotic places and, and meet new people and, and uh, jet in and jet out. And, you know, this, it, it was... I. No responsibility, of course, is, is what it all, you know, when you really get down to the root of things, which AA teaches us to do, it, that's what it, uh, that's what it was about. And, you know, my, this trip was going to be kind of my entree into this society that I wanted to travel in. And, of course, I, you know, my world was very small by this time. I did not drive after I totaled that car. You can't, you know, as you know, you can't let something like driving get in the way of your drinking. And, um, 
there's a travel agency near where I where I lived, and and you couldn't travel alone at that time in China. Um, and so I went with a tour, and it turned out they were all retired kindergarten and elementary school teachers. I was about 19 or 20, and I know that my roommate had been a nurse in the First World War, so you can imagine. Um, I was really uncomfortable there, to say the least, and I can't tell you that much about it. Um, I just remember how uncomfortable I was, how difficult it was to get a drink, and when I did get a drink, how I couldn't, you know, I had to kind of maintain. And, and I came back from that trip knowing on some maybe subconscious level, that there weren't going to be any more trips like that for me, that I, you know, my life now had become so narrowly circumscribed by my alcoholism and by my drinking, and I was barely holding on to that job at the bar. Um, I had, uh, drugs are a part of my story, I, I, but I, simply because they helped me, helped me drink more, but to the core I am an alcoholic. I had overdosed on LSD and ended up in a psych ward the year before that. And that really frightened me, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to drink and, and do cocaine, which was like health food. And, um, and I'm really grateful for the cocaine because it got me to you faster. And, and, you know, but I came back from that trip to China realizing that I, you know, that I had a habit and that I, I couldn't, I, you know, this freedom that I was seeking, um, it, was, it was just slipping away. And, and uh, I always mark that as kind of the last couple years of my drinking. I um, can just tell you that... Uh, I ended up, I lived in an apartment that was much like the house that I grew up in, except it was, it was way worse. Um, the first call that I made to AA was from a payphone in front of a liquor store that I had been 86 from because our phone was cut off. We, you know, the, the, the phone and power would often be cut off like it was in the house I grew up in. And um, the, uh, we had plumbing problems, and there was this huge wet spot by the front door. And on top of that, we had louvered windows, and the bottom six or so were always broken out, and there was wild cats that lived in a field nearby. We lived between a freeway off-ramp. It must have been the ugliest place on the island of Oahu. A freeway off-ramp and, and the big bus yard where they park all the city buses at night. And these wild cats would come in through the windows and get in our trash and spray all over them. But, you know, you just adjust. I mean, I, I'd come in and I'd, I'd step over that wet spot and I'd drop my purse and I'd get out the cats. And, you know, most of the time, I and I made, you know, fairly, fairly I could certainly could have paid the rent there. I made fairly good money. But I think when I got sober, I was sleeping on the floor on the living room floor of that apartment and renting out my bedroom because I, uh, I couldn't make the rent and I, I think the rent was maybe $400 and I made probably, you know, $150 a day in tips and, but uh, I had other priorities. So um, I, uh, my days would go like this. I'd come to around 3 in the afternoon and I'd hopefully have enough cocaine for the night before to kind of get my heart started and I'd have these terrible, terrible alcohol poisoning hangovers and I would just stand at the sink and put water drops on my tongue and, and have the dry heaves and, and the litany would always be the same. Normal people don't do this. Normal people don't do this. Normal people don't do this. would just go through my head a hundred times a day, just over and over and over. And I'd uh, get in a taxi cab with a hat pulled down over my eyes and get to my connections and get to the bar that I worked at and, and get through my shift where I was becoming you know, increasingly less tolerable. And I began to worry that the, the bars the, the bars are open until 4 a.m. there, and they reopen at 6 a.m., but, you know, there's two hours in there of downtime, and I started to worry about that because the uh, liquor stores stopped selling at midnight. And, you know, when, you know, if, and I'm sorry, I didn't, I forgot to, to uh, welcome the newcomers, the people who are newer than I am. I, I want to welcome you, and I hope that you find what I found here and, and uh, what is here, and I'd, I'd like to... Um, remind you if you haven't figured out yet that there's really something extraordinary about what you are sitting in and please um, avail yourself of that and if uh, back to the way that I the way that I drank at the end uh, 
I would, I would run downstairs to the liquor store under the bar I worked at just before midnight, and I'd get a couple little airplane bottles of vodka to keep with me in my purse um, in case I wasn't where I needed to be between 4 and 6 a.m. And newcomer, in case you're wondering, that is not social drinking. Um, I, um, my hair was falling out. My gums were receded from malnutrition. I was about 84 pounds and hearing voices, and I'd wake up in the night and be convinced there'd be someone out on my balcony or things crawling on my skin or... Um, and uh, I, um, that married boyfriend of mine, I was barely hanging on to that job, and I ended up drinking in what we called the hostess bars or the Korean bars um, in the red light districts in, in Honolulu. Um, not Hotel Street, but um, because, you know, the, the strip bars, and because we seek lower companions, and I didn't work in those places only because by the time I hit there, I just didn't have the self-esteem to ask for a job. But um, I was comfortable there that the bars are really dark, they're open till 4, and the booths are really high, and no one has goals there. And I could always look at the women dancing on the stage and say, well, you know, at least I'm not doing that. And I had been, you know, humiliated too many times in clubs, being escorted out by bouncers and put in a cab. And I just, I just wasn't up for that, and I couldn't bother to dress, and I just needed to drink and be left alone. And that married boyfriend of mine was not wanting to come around so much anymore, and he showed up one day, and... I'd been at the hospital the night before. I'd cut my ankle open and had some stitches. And um, they, I was drunk at the hospital, and they wouldn't give me any painkillers, and, and they could see that I could self-medicate. And the next day, I was kind of out of it and stumbling around. And, and he came over, and he said to me, look at your ankle. And that place where the stitches were was just black with fleas. And, um, and that's never an image that I like to share, but I always do because it's the one that I need to remember if I ever think there's any glamour left in the cocktail for me. That's, you know, that's the way that I lived. Um, at any rate, that day came when just simply nothing was working. And, uh, you know, it was one of those vodka bottle in the freezer mornings. And, and uh, you know, my, the voices were on me. And, and, um, and I just couldn't, just nothing was working. Nothing was working. And, and I started to pray that day. I, you know, I had the vodka bottle in one hand and a rosary in the other. And, I, and I, I'm sure it was the prayer. It was a, a new level of desperation. Um, and it must have been the prayer that then I, I went to down to that liquor store to that payphone and I called my boss. I had very few friends in my life by this time, um, but I, I had this boss who I think was probably an alcoholic as well. And he said that he would come over and he did. And he, you know, looked at me and he said, you know, you, you need a drink. And he was right. I, physically I did. I was sick and I was shaking. And, and I said to him, and I, again, I just have to attribute it to, you know, to the prayers that I said because I couldn't believe it when I said it. But I said, no, take me to the hospital. And, I don't know what I thought I was going to get there. I, I was hoping perhaps for a little Valium, maybe some sympathy. Um, thank God I got neither. Sympathy, I think, in particular is lethal for alcoholics. What I got, I'm really grateful that I got a doctor. He did not medicalize my problem. In fact, he said, you know, you're an alcoholic and a, and a drug addict, and we cannot help you. Um, this is where you need to go for help. And he gave me some phone numbers, and I think that they were to treatment centers. Um, and through a series of events, I didn't go into treatment, but I went to my first AA meeting. Through calling them, they got me um, to, to my first AA meeting, and I was terrified. I was so terribly, terribly afraid here. And, uh, uh, it, you know, you said things like, how are you? And, and, and I was just really afraid. And I would see you guys laughing and talking and smiling, and I would think, I'm never going to feel like that. I'm never going to be comfortable in my skin like that. I will never laugh that way. Um, and, the, you know, the one thing I did right was that, that, that I, I did get a home group. I didn't really realize I was doing it, but I got a home group, and I went there every Tuesday night whether I needed it or not. And I'd sit in the back, and I'd bargain with God, please don't let them call on me. Please don't let them call on me. Maybe next week, but, 
And eventually, you know, they say to hang with the winners, and that happened for me, not because I sought them out, but because they sought me out. And, of course, that's what made them winners, and that's all those people are still sober today. Um, and those people talked about service and about sponsorship and about working the steps, and they, and they got me involved. And I, I got a sponsor, and I did that fourth and fifth step that I was so terribly, terribly frightened of. And... Um, and, you know, it turned out to not be a big deal. And neither was, you know, what I thought I, well, I, you know, of course I wanted like Ben-Hur music and the sky to open up and some sort of epiphany. And, and I didn't get any of that but because it's, it's my, like most of us, all of us, I guess, I, you know, it's an incremental revolution is, is what Alcoholics Anonymous has, has brought to my life. Um, I've always lived by the tenets of instant gratification. So, of course, I, I want it instantly, but that's not the, the way that it works. Um, but I started to feel like I had a seat here and I had a place with you and I started to get a little bit more comfortable. And when I had about three years of sobriety, I moved to Los Angeles from Honolulu and I was told to be very careful um, that it's really easy to get lost in, um, in Alcoholics Anonymous in Southern California because it's a huge fellowship and you can really kind of fall through the cracks. And, and I got into a very dangerous place for an alcoholic and that's judgment because, you know, wherever you get sober, that's the definitive A for you. And they didn't do it in uh, Los Angeles the way they did it in Honolulu. And I couldn't hear the message, you know, because I was just so busy judging. And, and to make a long story short, I was sponsorless for about a year and a half. And um, I was just going to a meeting every now and then when the heat was on. I had hooked up with a lot of my old friends. Um, I really hate this part of my story, but it's it's my experience. So I'd hooked up with a lot of my old friends um, up north, most of whom were heroin addicts. And I had met a guy, a, a drug dealer in a park, um, and I was helping him spend his money. And I was coming up on my fifth day birthday, and I knew I was in a lot of trouble. Um, and I just... I was as desperate, I guess, at, at almost five as I was at day one, and I knew I was in trouble, and I knew I had to, to, to recommit and to kind of turn myself in to, to the program, and um, that's what I ended up doing. I, I worked with a woman, uh, Marianne King. We were waitresses together, and, and she had a lot of time, and, and she said, you know, there's a meeting I go to on Monday nights, and, and why don't you come with me? I think you'll like it, and, and I did that, and, and um, you know, and, and, and joined that group that she was a part of, and, and she suggested, you know, why don't you get a sponsor here, and and uh, I did that. I, I asked, as I said, I asked uh, Karen Garrison to sponsor me, and I, you know, I, I didn't have time to interview. I just needed to ask her, and, and someone suggested her. And for those of you that, that might know her, you know, she, she talks fast, faster than I do. And uh, I asked her to sponsor me, and then I listed this long litany of problems that I had acquired in the year and a half without a sponsor. And she responded with, honey, I expect a lot from the people I sponsor with your amount of sobriety. I want you to go to... I think she said four meetings a week and get commitments at all of them. And I want you to start answering phones at central office. I want you to get a panel. I want you to call me every day. I want you to get involved with your A sisters, the, the, other, the women I sponsor. I want you to start sponsoring women. I want you to do another fourth and fifth step. And I thought, you know, I obviously picked the wrong sponsor because her <laughs> solutions had nothing to do with my problems. And, and of course, the good news is, is that all those problems just died of neglect. Um, she, I had had, you know, because one more time I was on the outside of A looking in, I, and you know, looking at you guys and saying, I'm never going to feel like that. I'm never going to be comfortable in my skin like that. Um, you know, say what you like about AA activists, but the middle of A is a really tough place to get a drink. And for someone who is intense and fearful and baffled by life, I am at my best when I'm in the middle of you. It, it's just that's just been my experience and I like to try and keep a lot of bodies now between me and that door and I just you know I just flourish when I'm in the middle of you um, I did that fourth and fifth step and I you know I, I got real involved and had that panel and answered phones and, and all that stuff and um, 
I uh, did that fourth and fifth step, and, and one of the things that came out on that this time was that I was really ashamed of the fact that I only had an eighth grade education. And I just, she said, honey, you can have anything you want, sobriety, as long as you're willing to do the work to get it. And, of course, you know, that was the catch, was doing the work to get it. Um, I, I, you know, I just wanted the magic here. I knew it was here. You know, you hear those pitches, you know, in, in like 30 or 40 minutes. And I was living in a garage, and I'm a lawyer, you know, and you're like, oh, that's incredible. Where's mine? And, of course, there's a long process in between, and, and I just wanted the end result. And... Um, you know, she said, honey, you know, God only does for us what we can't do for ourselves, and you have to do the rest. And, and uh, why don't you take your GED exam? And, you know, I tried to tell her, you know, I, I, I can't do that, and, you know, to get my high school diploma. And I said, I know I can't pass. And she said, why don't you, why don't you do it anyway? And, um, and I didn't, that was, a, I, I had no idea. That was such a revelation to me. I could do it anyway. It didn't matter what I thought. I just had to do it anyway. And I, I did it with another member of my valuable. There's someone else in the room that's going through it, too. It's actually Leslie's ex-husband, and, and uh, we went through that together, and much to my surprise, I passed. And at 28, I became a high school graduate. And that was a really big deal to me. It was a really big deal. I had written that office wreckage of the past, and she insisted that I that I look at that and, and, and try and clean it up. And um, I started, and I, you know, and I was still waitressing, and very unhappy doing that. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it was just for me, it was just going to be a temporary job. And 17 years later, I was still doing it and frustrated and really don't have the temperament for it. Um, I uh, started going to a little community college out in Pasadena. I started, I think, with one class and and I just wanted to run all the time. You know, I, I, I really did. And um, and I some days I'd call Karen and say, you know, I was so afraid. I'd say, I can't do it today, Karen. I can't walk in there. You know, I'm two minutes late or I don't have my homework. And she would, you know, say lovingly, of course, you know, you get in there and don't call me until you do and hang up the phone. And, and uh, reeling from the shock, I'd, you know, I'd go to class. And I'm glad that she didn't allow me to, you know, argue with her, debate with her. That, you know, you, you always think if, if they would just that one last 30 seconds, if I could just put a spin on it this way, you just know that you'd bring them around to your way of thinking. Um, I am. Um, I ended up, after I was there three and a half years, I guess, and I, I got my first job there above minimum wage and beyond physical labor. I was 29. It was a, I was an English tutor for $6 an hour, but, it, you know, that was a big deal to me. I started to feel like there was a way out of waitressing. There was something else that I could do, and, and um, I never went in there thinking, you know, with much of a plan. I, I, because I, you know, I'm a great 100-yard dash person, and I think... Uh, Bob talked a little bit about this. I, you know, when he said, I don't finish anything. I don't. You know, I start off. And so I just, I couldn't do it that way. I just had to put one foot in front of the other. I couldn't make any big plans. And, but, you know, time went by and I um, had enough units to transfer. And Karen asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I'd, you know, I'd like to go to a major university and I'd like to go to UCLA. And it was the only place I applied to. That was, that was the best that I could do. I, it was so overwhelming to me um, just to kind of get past my own procrastination and everything else around that. Um, that was the best I could do was apply to one place. And, but I couldn't meet their math requirements. And um, I, I had taken the same math class three times and had to withdraw before I failed. And um, I finally, you know, because we learn here about doing footwork, I went and had myself tested for a learning disability. And I was told um, by the learning disability specialist that I had a really severe learning disability and I would not have a university education and that I should... Um, in fact, she said that UCLA would not even let me, you know, let me in the door to even discuss it and that I should um, set my sights lower on maybe vocational school or a non-accredited university. And But, you know, nobody in AA said that to me. 
and I guess you know being more well versed in, in uh, exceptions and miracles than learning disability PhDs. Um, and Karen said to me, "Honey, you just keep trying and you just keep knocking on doors." And and I found out that no sometimes means I don't know, and and that's what I did. And I you know it's always good to get a second opinion. And and I applied against her advice and against the advice um, of my counselor. And and in June of um, 19 of 97, I put on a cap and gown for the first time in my life, and I graduated from UCLA. And um, you know, they handed me a diploma that said magna cum laude under my name. And I got to give the commencement address at that graduation. And, um, you know, my mom got to sit in the VIP section and she had her scholar back. And, and it was a, it was a really great day. There was maybe 30, I don't know, the, na the number changes every time I tell the story, but there were several members of my home group there. And, um, and two other people in my home group that was also graduating. It was just a really wonderful day. And, um, I, because I was the, the speaker, I got to go to this VIP reception, and the other speaker was um, an ambassador, one of Clinton's ambassadors to the Middle East, and they have this academic robing ceremony, and they, you know, dress the, the academics in their gowns from Harvard and Princeton and what have you, and, um, and there was this ambassador with his people, and I think he had, like, a couple secret service, and, and then here's, you know, me with my guest, my sponsor at the time, Karen, who's, you know, a woman who came out of a blackout walking naked down a highway, and... Uh, and another old-timer from my home group, Don Newcomb, who, you know, did lots of time in the penitentiary. And, I, you know, I just thought if they only knew. Um, but I tell you, that exotic coterie of friends I have always wanted, you know, I am right in the middle of you, and I would not have it any other way. And that life that I always wanted, I'm, I'm living it, you know, right now, this moment. I jetted in here to an exotic locale, and I'm, and I'm meeting people. I, I, I have to recognize it. You know, I can miss that. My sponsor today is Marion Wallin, and she'll always tell me, you know, don't miss today, because I'll do that. I'll, you know, I'll be walking out there on the beach and think, someday I'll go to tropical places and meet new friends, and I'll have to say, I'm doing that now, right now, you know? Um, I uh, took a year off between undergrad and, and graduate school, and um, <clears throat> I was gonna, I wanted to get a job or teach, teach for a year, and what I found out was I put a lot of expectations on, on that degree, you know, I, I really did, it's only in retrospect, I thought that I, you know, a degree just, it just means you have an education, it doesn't mean you don't have character defects, I thought, I think there was a part of me that thought, you know, and I, I won't be the truck driver's daughter anymore, and I, um, you know, I, I won't be afraid anymore. That it was going to kind of give me some sort of, it's, you know, it's it's not, it doesn't cure alcoholism. I'll tell I'll tell you that much. And and uh, that you know, I paid my dues, and now where was mine? And and you know, I still had a lot of lessons to learn. I really did. Um, I did not get. Well, I also found out that I had no job searching skills, and I was terrified. And uh, I took a job teaching kindergarten, phonics to kindergartners, like an after school program, and I was so so scared. And, you know, people would say, well, can you read? And it's like, yes, well, then, you know, they don't know that you're not a teacher because I felt, you know, like a fake. And plus they can be very cruel. I mean, they say things like, is that your real hair? Because you look like you have some other hair underneath and stuff <laughs> like that. And I was right back to that place. I, you know, I, I would call Marion, and I'm so grateful for Marion. She understands the kind of paralyzing fear that I have. And I... You know, and I, I would just, I'd want to call in sick, and, I, and she'd say, you know, if you do that, you'll never walk in a classroom again. And I was sick. I was physically sick from the fear of it. And, and she was so right that, you know, she, I had to keep going forward. And, and it's a good thing because the next job I got was, I, I, I needed that. Um, I, that job ended, and I was, 
I wasn't really looking all that hard. I was just crying about it a lot. And a, a girlfriend of mine kept telling me, someone in the program, you know, we really, really need a teacher where I teach um, in Gardena. It's, it's special ed middle school, and, you know, we're desperate for teachers, and, and will you come and take the job? And, and uh, you know, there's two things I was never going to do, special ed and middle school. Absolutely not. I said, I did not go to school for, you know, seven years or however long it was to take another job I don't want. No, get off my back. And all the while, I'm saying the third step prayer, and I'm asking God, you know, show me where to serve. And all my life, at, you know, as up until I started drinking in, in my Catholic faith, I would say those vocation prayers and um, kind of hoping, you know, I hope God's not listening, but you want to be pious. Um, uh, that, you know, show me wh where I should fit. And, and all this time, you know, my girlfriend keeps saying to me, you know what, she just would not, she was relentless for about three months. You know, the principal asked me, in fact, she started in September. And it wasn't until January that I made the mistake of mentioning this job to my sponsor. And I said, you know, well, there is this one job that I can get, but it's special ed middle school, and nobody wants to teach that, and that's why I can get the job. And I felt this frost come over the phone. And, and she said, well, as the mother of a former special ed student, I think that um, you know that you could really be of service there, and I think that you know in your heart that that's where you're supposed to be. And I tell you, the moment she said that, I did know in my heart that that's where I was supposed to be. And I'd known it from the second that my friend, I, but I just thought, you know, I, I was hoping that God didn't do such a good impression of my friend Lisa. I just, you know, I really, I mean, Gardena, 163rd in Normandy, I mean, I, I wanted, you know, something a little more glamorous perhaps, or, I, you know, I don't know. I, but, it, you know, I guess it wasn't up to my standards, and of course I, I was terrified. And, um, and I went to work there, and it was exactly like what I thought it was going to be. It was an L.A. Unified inner city nightmare, um, you know, and, and uh, we, we had no books, and the, they'd had substitute teachers all year long, day-to-day -day subs. We had metal detectors, but, you know, no books. And whatever money had been there for the classroom was gone, and, and uh, they had regressed to where a lot of them couldn't read anymore. And, and you know, and I would try, I try to tell my friend, you know, I, I have no training for special ed, and, and not that they care. You know, they just they need a warm body in the classroom. And... And she said, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is the best training I've ever had for teaching special ed. <laughs> and uh, she said, treat them like newcomers. And, and I tell you, I mean, that's, that's what I've got, and that's what I give, and it's worked out. Um, but it was hard. You know, I was threatened and followed, and it was, it was scary. And, um, and, and I, you know, I have to show up there every day and, and uh, just do the best that I can. And I get, you know, these kids have problems. I mean, I have one this year. He's... You know, his, his fingers had been burned off by his grandmother and, and that in the stove in that same year that she did that, his mother died of a gunshot wound. He's been in all kinds of group homes. I and mean, these kids have problems, you know, and I just think, I, you know, I'd call Mary and say, look, I'm just a person that needed a job. You know, I don't, I, I can't, I can't do this. And she'd say, you know what, if you're not, it's not curative. You can't, you don't have a cure for that. There isn't an answer for that. You, you know, you just have to show up. And I'd get so overwhelmed by their problems, and then they'd be wanting my attention, and I'd be thinking, not now. I'm thinking about how awful your lives are. And, and, but that happens here. You know, people come in, and you think, how are they ever going to straighten out their life? You don't tell them that. You know, you think, keep coming back. It works. And, and it happens, and you see it happen. You think, that is, there is no way for them to get from where they were to where they are. And I thought, you know, the best that I can do is do it, you know, what, what you've done for me is that you give me a place to come to for an hour or an hour and a half and sanity prevails in spite of all the forms of insanity that we bring in these rooms. Sanity prevails and you're kind to me and I'm respected and you remember my name. And that's, you know, that's what I can do. And, 
and um, yeah, that's what I started doing, and and it's uh, it you know it, it it turned out okay, and I survived that year, and and uh, I had the opportunity to go. Um, I wanted to get a master's degree, and I, I, I went and did that. I, I got a master's at Stanford this last year. I was um, there were seven of us in the program, and it was really a gift. And I I really felt I mean you know those weren't my people, and they really weren't either, but. Um, but I, you know, I knew how to how to handle that, and it was it was a wonderful experience. I had the opportunity to sponsor some people there, and um, and you know, when I got accepted there, my mom sent me a, a card that said, and she's not very effusive, and and she said, I'm just as pleased as punch, and whatever happened to that girl that dropped out of high school and went to work as a waitress, and and you know, she came to you, and you've really given me um, the absolute best life that I've ever had. When I um, that was just in June when I got that degree and and one more time not as much as when I got the first degree but I you know there were certain things that I wanted and I wanted them on my timeline and I wanted a full time community college teaching position and and I applied for several of them and got none of them and um, what I found out is that you you have to pay some dues you have to get experience first and and that's what I'm doing and I you know on Friday nights and Saturdays I um. I'm Professor McRae at the very community college that my sponsor sent me to, terrified, um, to take those first classes. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's really exciting. And, and I also have a full-time job. I'm at 163rd in Normandy teaching special ed middle school. And we have no books and we have metal detectors. And, um, uh, and I, um, you know, I don't know. I wonder if, if, you know, where exactly I'm supposed to be. But I, I know this, that, uh, you know, when I am, I, I feel like I am more, that I'm living in a solution. I feel like I'm, I, uh, you know, that I'm doing God's will for my life. And uh, because, only because I know what it feels like to not do it. And in spite of how difficult it is um, where I work and the huge, enormous problems, I mean, it can get really, those are not good days. When I look at the big picture, those are not good days. Um, you know, it's a, a, a beleaguered school district, and we're not the worst school, but on the, you know, when the state rankings came out on a scale of 1 to 10, we're a 3, which we're kind of pleased about. But, you know, there are problems. I mean, there's, you know, we're in the middle of a real education crisis, and I'm kind of in some ways at, at ground zero um, there, and, and I feel most of the time pretty ineffectual because I, you know, I don't have training as a teacher, and um, and I, and I'm, you know, like my sponsor says, a lot of the problems that my students bring to the classroom, it's, you know, there isn't a solution that I, you know, I can't, I just, I'm really learning there what it means to live in the moment, you know, I just, we have those moments where it's working and they're able to be on task and, and there's not, you know, a fight breaking out or, or something that, you know, and I, and those moments I really seize on and, and I, for years would um, hear people from these podiums say that, you know, I'm, so, so many years sober and you know and I have a job that I love and it, I could never say that I could not say that and I'm you know I'm almost 15 years sober and I'm here to tell you at last that uh, that I have a job that I love and and I was um I was this close to missing it you know I almost I almost missed that experience um and I don't know what the plan is you know I, I there's a part of me that thinks well why did I go and get this very expensive degree if I'm just gonna you know end up working in the inner city teaching middle school, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the plan is, but I'm just, I just try and be open, and I don't try and force anything anymore, because um, that's a very uncomfortable place to be in, and and we'll see, and we'll see. Um, but I tell you, I have, um, I get such joy and such satisfaction from my work, and it's, um, it's a very new experience for me, 
and um, I, I, I have I have you to thank for it. And um, I, I'm I'm going to stop. I do. This is really awful, but I really just want to make a, um, a, a a plug for my students. If anyone is um, not using their little lotions in the room, I could really use those as rewards. I'm sorry to do this, but we you know we give out rewards in the classroom. <laughs> we don't have anything, and uh, so if anyone's not using them, I and my students would really appreciate them because little things like that are, are a real big deal and um, you know we all like to, to get juice so um, um, my time is up um, I just I know I've kind of jumped around a lot I you know it's just it's it's wonderful again to be here it's wonderful to see Millie out there and Annette and my life is good my life is really really good um, I just want to finish from one of my favorite quotes from As Bill Sees It, and that is that uh, outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic event out of the past. But we have recovered and are helping others to recover, and what greater cause could there be for rejoicing than this? And I want to thank you so much for listening. Most importantly, I want to thank you for my life.